Kenneth Kukier joins us this week in the Tech Emergence podcast. Kenneth is senior editor at The Economist, responsible for data and digital products there, in addition to being the co-author of a book called Big Data, A Revolution That Will Transform How We Live, Work, and Think. In that regard, Kenneth did kind of write the book on big data, arguably one of the most popular books on the topic. We speak today on what are the technologies that underlie the term big data that make it what it is, and how are companies who are behind the Facebooks and Googles and some of the larger, well-funded folks in the Valley area aiming to catch up with those technologies? How ought companies think through them? How ought companies assess their ROI and sort of make sense of this dynamic that is big data? Where does data play a role in the future of business? How should people think about it? And Kenneth makes a nice analogy with the dynamic of computing many, many decades ago that I think will be an apt one for the folks who are tuned in today. So hopefully this is a useful interview for the folks of you who are in the industry world and aiming to get a deeper understanding of the term big data. And without further ado, we'll get right into things with Kenneth. So, Kenneth, the first question I had for you, a lot of folks who are going to hear your name are going to know you from your book on big data. For many folks, even in the business world, maybe even in the startup world, to some degree, big data is a little bit more of an amorphous concept than it is something tangible. When we're talking about the the topic, what do you consider to be kind of the technologies that are really supporting big data and allowing for for sort of the meaningful applications in that space. What are people really referring to boots on the ground when they're saying big data? Well, you know, you're absolutely right. The term is a big tent and it's been used in lots of different ways and misused as well. We know when the modern version of, you know, of these two word pair, big data, cropped up and it was around the year 2002, 2003, 2004. And it was used to describe both a problem as well as a solution. And what well, the problem was, it was that Moore's Law had jumped another increment and people were getting swamped, mainly search engines in California, by the amount of information that they, that they now had to process and genomics facilities on the East Coast of the United States. And so they had to actually innovate at the layer of the infrastructure, both hardware and software, just to run their analyses, because what they were doing was different than they did in the past. They knew the term for it, and one of the terms that sort of popped up, among others, was big data. Now, from that time, things like Google's MapReduce was emerged in the open source variant Hadoop that was created at Yahoo. At the same time, this technique in artificial intelligence known as machine learning, which sort of was created, as you know, in the 50s, but didn't really work. And although it was petering along and, and doing fairly better, it started to work extremely well by around the year 2000 and onwards, not because the algorithms got better, not only because the computing power was better, but really because we put more data to the problem, right? Because we had more data, we applied more data because we applied more data. Things that didn't work now were working very well indeed. And the term big data was a very useful one to embrace. Today, all of that doesn't really matter for most business people. Sadly, the term big data has been sort of diluted. And now it basically means everything from an Excel spreadsheet to Hadoop. But there actually really is a usefulness to it. And the reason why is it's going to describe something that is still very useful for everyone. And that is, even for those who are using it in a general sense, we are applying traditional statistics to problems that never had a quantitative bent for it. We're taking the scientific method at a robust, muscular sense of how to take data, collect it, analyze it, and report it back using rather sophisticated statistical techniques but we've democratized it because it's now based in software on computers, and we now can actually do it for marketing campaigns, and we can do it for human resources, and for 
a host of other areas where before it was only applied to physics. And so it's still a win for society and for everyone, even if what they're doing is rather rudimentary in terms of statistics, in terms of the what we did during the days of Galton in the in the late 1800s. It's still a win. But at its core, if you wanted to be a purist, big data is just a rebranding of the term machine learning. Huh, curious. Okay, so and of course, I think, you know, if there's any ubiquitous threads across, hey, what's driven the the innovation, you know, in, in the artificial intelligence space, whether we're talking to finance folks or risk management folks or e-commerce or whatever, compute power and the amount of data is kind of the big concept. It sounds as though in, in your mind, big data and machine learning are sort of inexorably connected. I think a lot of people assume, you know, if your spreadsheet's big enough, maybe we're not talking about you know, your average Excel spreadsheet. But if you have a database large enough, now you're dealing with quote unquote big data, w- whatever that implies. For you, it sounds as though if you're, if you're being true to the term, you're conducting analyses that could only really be classified as machine learning. If you were quote unquote, in fact, using or quote unquote, in fact, leveraging big data, am I, am I hearing you correctly from kind of a semantic context? Yes. However, I would race to say that I'm not religious about it. I think that people... Uh, who are applying data in novel ways, even though to their problem, even though it's on an Excel spreadsheet, it's still good enough because it's still a win. They're they're taking something that had never been quantitative before, never numerate, and they're now putting it into this world of data and numeracy and quantification. That's still good. I mean, I, st- I still think that's fine. It's true that as a purist, the point about big data is that it's really defining something really revolutionary and new in business and new in AI, which is the fact that we now that we have this data, these techniques actually work. When I was writing the book Big Data, and people sort of didn't understand what I was writing about, my shorthand to those in the know was, oh, it's Freakonomics for Machine Learning. And then people understood what, it, what I was writing about. I was basically going to take all of the examples of the way in which people were applying data in novel ways because the data didn't exist before, the technique didn't exist before, you couldn't actually do it before because you didn't have the processing power, and now these things were possible and you could actually create predictions or new forms of economic value from the information that were actually almost magical because they never could exist before. Understood. And, and I think it's important to kind of clarify the bedrock there. I think if there's somebody who's gone far enough back in terms of the, the term itself, it'd be you. And so it, it's it's interesting to hear your your conception thereof. You touched on a dynamic that I certainly hear a lot of when people use the buzzword, maybe we could say, of big data, which is taking quantifiable elements that maybe weren't pulled in, pooled in, in, in any kind of a meaningful sense and collecting and leveraging them, even if you're not formally jamming it all through some machine learning algorithms in, in R or, or Python or something, just taking what was once invisible now has some kind of a numerical metric that we can track. That concept of, hey, we're taking these invisible tidbits of the e-commerce experience, of the payment transaction, of the images that we're assessing, whatever, and we're now finding a way to enumerate that some people, I feel as though if they do enough of that, would leverage the term big data. And it sounds like that's what you're touching on as well. Yeah. But of course, the term is, it is just a buzzword. And, it, and sadly, a lot of people and consultants, et cetera, will try to sell their services based on the term. There's a lot of gullible business people who will accept that. But it is just a term and it's really not that important. Ultimately, the idea of big data is going to be like the idea of computing. It was probably pretty chic in the 1970s for 
computer software and hardware vendors to knock on the door of corporate America and talk about how the way that computing can solve your banking problems and computing can make you a more efficient airline. That's fine. But the point is that no one will dare do that today. It's become such a bedrock of how things work that it's really about what the product is and how the service is delivered to the end customer to increase the value. And so, too, with big data, it's not like we're going to be talking about it in the future. It's going to be given that every bank will be a big data bank. Every insurance company will be a big data insurance company. It'll be applied to absolutely everything because machine learning is so fungible as a technology. It will be applied to almost everything. It's just a sensible way of of producing software, if you will, and the output of lots of data inputs that you want to actually can't program because it's too complex, but you actually can actually, through the the data, find the pattern that would actually allow the machine to infer what the correct answer is. We'll simply apply this to everything. And so soon it's going to slip into the background and we'll be talking about, you know, doing a better prediction, better management of interest rates when it comes to selling mortgages. And we're not even going to use the term machine learning and big data. It'll be taken for granted that that's the technology in the same way that we take for granted that every single business is going to have to run with computers and the internet, and we don't actually who the term and try to define it as one thing or another. I like that, and I don't think we've ever had anybody use ballyhoot in an interview, but but I, I should frankly use it more often myself. I think that's an important frame to think through. It's like computers in the 70s. Hey, you could be better with computers. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of, it's so infantile in that regard, but at some point will of course become ubiquitous, will of course answer problems that hard programming cannot in, in every dark corner of business and industry and whatnot. And so it's, that's a, a useful frame to think through. I wanted to touch on, you get to speak with and speak to a good number of companies that are maybe doing this leveraging machine learning quite actively. I mean, you use a lot of examples of the big boys, you know, the Googles of the world, the you know, the other folks who, who are sort of ahead of the curve by a wide margin and still are, there's obviously businesses that aren't ahead of the curve and or who are sort of aiming to catch up. Maybe they're bigger and stodgier. Maybe they started as small businesses and they didn't have 20 million in venture funding to bring on, you know, 30 guys with master's degrees from Stanford, but they're aiming to sort of grasp and leverage these, these techniques and technologies. What do you see as some of the biggest misconceptions about the technologies around quote unquote big data that you see in the business world? Things that it would really behoove people to fix these ideas in their head because they're not right. What do you see as those common big data misconceptions, if you will? You know, it's a, it's a really great question. And what I've observed is the first one is that Interestingly, the biggest obstacle is that there is no conception about it. For most business people, for most managers, they really just don't understand what it is. They don't even know about it. So it's not that they have a misconception. They lack a conception. So the first thing we need to do is educate them and say, hey, there's this new technique. There's a new show in town. It's called data. Now, most people are now catching on to the idea that there is this thing about data. They don't really understand what it is. They like the term big data because it sounds chic and they've read it in the press. The idea of machine learning just sounds a little bit geeky, and so they're a little bit off-put by it. So once we get past the idea that there's really no conception, and we now have misconceptions, the first misconception, I'll give you the two misconceptions and then unpack them both. So the first misconception is that it's not ready yet. And then the second misconception is that it's ready to go. And the truth is somewhere in the middle. But let me let me look at the first one first, because it's a really, really interesting misconception. This idea that, well, oh, machine learning, it's, you know, it's, well, it's not quite ready yet. It's, you know, it's still on the runway. And I, I just want to see how it peters out first before we need to invest in it and look more closely at it. Completely wrong, right? Um, we use machine learning absolutely every single day. 
every single post office in developed countries applies it. They don't actually read handwritten envelope letters anymore. They simply run it through a scanner, and the scanner is able to, with about 98% degree accuracy, identify what the letters are and numbers are so you can sort the mail with a machine rather than a human being. And that's one reason why we can actually still have low-cost postage and actually increase the number of paper letters through the post. So it's so it's used in, in that way. Of course, it's Google, you know, need I say more, you don't have search engines at scale unless you have machine learning. It does an incredible job, particularly with typos. In fact, as you know, it's become so effective at identifying what you're looking for, even with a string of typos, that people no longer actually try no, to no type the, the search query correctly. They type it, it you know, deliberately in knowing that it's going to work. And so that leads to a whole other order set of problems, of course. Uh, and then the third is just domains that where you wouldn't expect it. And one great example that I love is Japan Railway, JR, one of the world's largest rail networks. And what they have done is they have a little train with a camera on it that goes through every evening across you know, the rail network and takes photographs. And it looks for damaged rails. And it can spot these damaged rails through the, you know, the thousands upon tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of photographs that are taken every night and then sorted through a machine learning filter. Now, it's something that you probably had a human being trying to do that in the past. It was probably very difficult to do. But now you can actually cover more track and you can do it less expensively and you could probably do be more accurate and lower the potential for a rail accident by using machine learning. So it's a great win for everybody, even for society, because maybe you don't have to run the track as often if you're just taking photographs of it. So in this way, Machine learning is here right now. It's all, it already exists. So that's one misconception that's gone. But on the other side, of course, many people think that it's ready to go, that all you need to do is just plug it into your system and suddenly you're going to make profits at the other end. And that too isn't quite right. Again, truth is somewhere in the middle. It's still early days. One of the problems that we have is we need labeled data. And for lots of problem spaces, we don't have that labeled data. Even if we have the data, it's not labeled. And the third area is an uncomfortableness with it by business people as well as by regulators when they look a little bit more closely at it and they realize that they lose causality. They lose the ability to understand why the algorithm came with the decision that it that it came to because they don't they're not quite willing yet to put their trust in it. And I think there's a lot of good reason why you wouldn't want to put your trust hundred percent into it, but you probably do maybe ninety nine percent. Huh. And I'm going to try to make an analogy with one that you already started with, which is kind of computing. So in the 70s, hey, you can be in a more efficient airline with computers, sort of like, ooh, a little bit far out at the time, still a little bit. There's only a few wizards who really get what, what a computer is. You read, you know, Gates's biography and kind of the, the early personal computer days. And this is really archaic, weird stuff. Like people just don't do this anymore because computers are kind of easy. Like anybody, regardless of IQ, can get an iPhone or any laptop and can do things because computing is no longer strange command command lines and like really obscure languages. It's sort of objects and computing could not have been ubiquitous until we got to that point. Machine learning still, in my personal opinion, you might be able to further this, Ken, it still is very much in the point where there's wizards, and now there's a lot more of them because we have online learning, we have computers to proliferate these technologies, but there's wizards that can set it up. It's not like you said, oh yeah, plug it in, right? Marketing automation software. Hey, no problem. They If someone enters their email in this little box, 
you write a bunch of emails and now this person will get them automatically. It's like, it works, right? The user experience there does not require software, like a, a background in computer software or whatever. That, that's, that's simple stuff. It's usable by humans on the street, not, not humans out of Carnegie Mellon. So machine learning, I, I think, you know, when you said it's not quite ready yet, it's not like, hey, you plug it in yet. I think it's because it's still mired in its math and in its nascent applications to the point where it does not exist in a box where it gets plugged in. It is still very wizard-like in terms of some of its applications. It's not like any small business owner with a shoe shop can get a machine learning program to optimize you know, what's, what's on the, his end caps of his shoe shop in, in some small town or something. We're, we're not there yet. W- would you liken that analogy? Would you say that maybe that's part of why it's not ready yet? Or do you think there's other reasons in addition? No, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I think there's there's multiple reasons. And one of the biggest is the fact that it's just so bloody hard to actually get going. In the case of classical machine learning, classical machine learning is just, I would argue, is just simply statistical inference at a, you know, Moore's Law scale. But you need a lot of data to to get the inferences very, very good because you're dealing with very subtle probabilities. So an example of that would be language translation, right? I mean, we, we have the foundation of how to do language translation through statistical machine learning in the 1990s through the Project Candide by IBM in which they took translations of French and English from Canada's parliamentary records and just cross-compared them. And they did extremely well. The problem is that they only had a few mil- million pages of data, oh, yeah. they, they gave up on it because it was too hard. And then when Google marched in with, with billions and eventually a trillion words data set, they could actually do extremely better because they had, they had three to six orders more of magnitude, more data to work from. So, But that's basically statistical inference. And so although that's very difficult to get doing, to get going, and there's not a lot of people who know how to do that, and you need the data to be labeled, and it's a problem to, to yeah. get that, and you need the yeah, machine. Yeah. It is actually, it is doable. So if you really care about it, if you're an insurance company or of course. In, the, in the finance industry, yeah, you can get that to work, and you can actually solve problems and do good things with it. But deep learning, which is, which is actually considerably different than classical machine learning, because it's not really statistical inference at scale anymore, there's a, just a lot more black magic it's to get going. And there's really not that many people in the world who know how to do it. There, it's it looks more like nuclear physics in the 1930s and 40s. You have a small cadre of several hundred people in the world who all study with each other and know each other, who know actually how to get this to work and work well. A lot of other people are making a good, valid effort at it, but not really getting it to work. So to really get it to work, there's a lot of fine-tuning of the parameters. And there, it's a little bit of a black magic. I think there's... It's actually just conceptually hard to understand as well. Yep. So the the issue there is, it, for most companies, you don't stand a chance to apply deep learning. You're going to have to wait 10, 15 years. I would I would guess that's probably a reasonable time frame before it becomes a bit more democratized, like the spreadsheet software, like Lotus One Two Three, if you will, for old timers who who know the analogy. Yep. Which is to say that it's still it's still fiddly. You still need to be a nerd to do it. Yes, but it's but you could but anybody can do it. Like any company of yep. any reasonable size can do it, and it doesn't actually. It's not a bet the bank moment. So that's farther off. But the really interesting stuff is that you don't actually have to do it. Remember, ultimately AI, machine learning, deep learning, it's an intermediate good, and what that means in economics is you don't really want to buy AI. No. What you want is a 
is is saving money on your insurance yes. premiums. What you want is you know a supply chain that works better with better uptime. There's a famous Harvard Business School professor Theodore Levitt who quipped, "Nobody wants to buy a quarter inch drill bit; they want a quarter inch hole." Yep. AI fits perfectly into that formulation because nobody actually wants to buy an AI algorithm. What they want is to have lower priced car insurance. And so there, as an intermediate good, lots of companies are going to simply be able to find the vendor to help them out to solve their problems. And whether it's what the black magic is, whether it is someone who's actually tuning AI parameters or whether someone's reading the tea leaves and giving the right answer, they actually don't care. They just want to get the right answer. Yeah, I think, well, right now it's a lot more augury. You know, you mentioned your tea leaf reading. It's, it's a lot more augury than it is sort of objective kind of measurement. I, I think we'll, we'll probably have to cap it on this question because I realize where we're at for time, but you're bringing us in an interesting direction that people will be able to rely on the vendor landscape. You won't have to be, right? Nobody builds their own smartphones. You buy it from Apple and you can literally get a major concussion and then like drink a bunch of scotch and you can still use an iPhone because it's easy. It's not hard. You don't have to be a nerd to to use an iPhone. They make them. You don't have to build it. Right now, you're saying that maybe in the machine learning space, certainly companies with a big enough budget can go ahead and, and buy some folks out of Carnegie Mellon or Stanford or MIT or whatever, you know, staff them up and develop that. But what you're getting at is that the vendor landscape will expand to the point where if you want to improve your upsells or your recommendation for your articles for time on page, if you're a media company of some kind, there's going to be folks who do that. And you're just going to have to kind of sort and pick them. Am, am I sort of on the right point here, Ken? Yeah, absolutely. Got it. Lastly, on that point, and I'm, you know, this I think will be curious from a guy like yourself who's done a lot in this space. How do you see companies making that call? Your book coming up is more on the AI and machine learning space, such a nascent field. People are having to pick between vendors touting machine learning applications in fraud detection, in finance, in you name it. How are they comparing? There's no there's no Gartner quadrant for these technologies, this this augury stuff. How are smart companies making decisions among vendors and navigating this landscape, at least from your perspective where you stand today? You know, it seems like my, my experience is that it's still pretty early. Companies are just, they're experimenting. They're doing internal things, but there's no, not many vendors. There's really, actually, there's no vendors who hang out a stall in front of their shop that says, We're, we do machine learning for you. Now, there certainly are several vendors who are doing data processing, right? And even the great consultancies, the grand ones like ECG and Accenture. McKinsey are getting into that space and Accenture, of course. And, you know, they, they all are willing to go in there and they're going to apply and what they say, which is very responsible of them is, you know, we, we apply whatever method is most appropriate for the problem because for a lot of problems, they actually don't need machine Not at all. Fact, Not even close. You, you can't do it. And, and, also, for a lot of problems, the, the dirty secret and why big data is taking off, this, this, the idea that the term is because classical statistics from the 1920s serves the purposes perfectly well. The, the only problem was it just wasn't used before because no one really thought that they should take their marketing campaign or their political campaign and to apply it with taking all of the data to learn from it. And so now, now that they can, they do. And so that's good enough. And so all of the consultancies so far, I think, are being quite responsible. But part of it is because they don't actually have enough machine learning people to actually apply to all the companies that are knocking on their door. So they're very willing to do the more basic stuff as well, which is a lot easier. 
So for the moment, no one is really going out there. And so there's no way to compare machine learning vendors. But that will come, you know, in time as the tools become still more sophisticated. And more importantly, as companies get their data in better order, it's cleaner, it's labeled, you can do more things with it. They, they have to upgrade their infrastructure to allow this to take place. For most companies, they've never even done an audit, an inventory of their own data resources. And if the, if they do have this data, sometimes the you know, older data is in data warehouses that they really can't access anymore, which is absolutely crazy because it's one of their assets if they can find a compelling business case to actually free up the funds to clean it, to find it, clean it up and get it into a system that's processable. But that's happening. All companies are thinking seriously about this. Boards of directors are being advised on this. And so, but sadly, of course, the reality of, of corporate life is it's an investment without a clear ROI. Yeah. And we know how well that does. So bolder companies are willing to take the bet and companies that are a little bit more conservative are still doing proof of concept reports and giving it to their IT team. And their IT people don't understand it because they grew up in a different era. Oof. Well, it, it might be uh, one one other trend, Ken, I guess, that proliferates kind of the the fall of those in the Fortune 500 who who sort of stumble in, in that category if, if there's too much halting. But of course, I guess they have to make their own assessments. So we'll have to see what the, what the future holds there. But I sincerely appreciate your insights on this topic, Ken. That's all we had for today. But thank you so much for being here on the Tech Emergence Podcast. My pleasure. This was great. That wraps up today's episode here on the Tech Emergence Podcast, and thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to stay in touch with our latest interviews with C-level executives and top researchers and thinkers in the domains of AI and the intersection of technology and intelligence, then make sure to subscribe here on iTunes or visit us on our main website at techemergence.com, where you can see all of our interviews broken down by category, as well as articles, news, market research, and trends in artificial intelligence. If you found this episode particularly thought-provoking, feel free to leave your thoughts in a review here on iTunes, or you can feel free to reach out to us at our main website. Thanks, as always, for tuning in, and I'll catch you next week.